And so there's this way of then when you attune to your desire as a roadmap to your destiny of like who you were born to be and what you were born to do, and suddenly that's what you're orienting towards, then you're much less likely to get sold a bunch of bullshit that you don't need. The web of erotic relationship is the same web that you connect to through ritual. It's that same web that I'm always like looking to reweave us into. Because when you have an understanding that you're woven into the web of life, then you want to serve it. I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Sages. Today's guest is very special, a very special person and a very special person in my life. It's a real honor and a delight to have her on the show. Eve Lady Apples Bradford is an educator, writer, artist, and experience designer, utilizing extensive studies in art, language, performance, cultural theory, spiritual practice, and permaculture to create interdisciplinary events. Her work exists in the liminal space between activism and prayer, science and art, chaos and structure, transmission and collaboration. With her long-term creative partner, Isis Indria, Eve is the co-founder of Living Village Culture, a collective dedicated to bringing art, immersive experience and activism to build awareness, strengthen relations and align in service with each other, the planet and the sacred. Living Village Culture produces and curates all of the content for The Compass at Lightning in a Bottle and has collaborated on symposia and events with Bioneers, Indigenous Environmental Network, Nexus Global, If Not Us, Then Who, Unify, and many others. They also facilitate deep dive retreats each year focused on ritual practice as a foundation for a life of sacred activism and service and on ritual theater as one collaborative manifestation of that work. Eve is currently apprenticed to Zhen Dao and is a lineage holder and teacher of Moga Dao, a tradition of post-Taoist philosophy, archetypal Qigong, death sexology, and spiritualized martial arts. She is also a player in Zhen Dao's Sakura, Eminence Theater Troupe. So you can see why <laughs> I want to have one and many conversations with her. Eve, thank you so much for making the time for this conversation. Thank you for having me. We are here in Santa Fe in Eve's home with a crackling fire. And if you hear that crackle, we hope that that, the beauty of that energy transmits to you. So Eve, you are someone who I consider a spiritual badass. Why, thank you. (laughs) And that is, I choose those words very deliberately because I think that you you capture your you have East Coast roots like me. True. You went to NYU Gallatin studies. Uh, you have the edge that maybe a lot of um, foundationally New Age people, let's say, uh, is not typical of them. Mm-hmm. And yet you have a very deep and very thoughtful and very genuine spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. And our conversations about prayer and spirit have really enriched how I see the world and relate to those practices myself. So I'm really excited to get into some of these deep questions with you. Mm. I want to start with just learning a little bit about your upbringing and sort of what the trajectory was for you to become the Eve Lady Apples before us today. 
Well, I think that might be the first time anyone's ever called me a spiritual badass. So I'm going to carry that one in my pocket for a while. Um, you should get business cards. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I I was born to um, classic East Coast hippie parents, which is different than West Coast hippie parents. Um they were back to the land people in the 70s. They both grew up in New York and moved to Vermont in the 70s, built a log cabin. I was born at home in front of the fire in the log cabin, which had no electricity with a midwife, like the whole thing. Um, it was actually a stone and log cabin. And so I was raised in that environment with people that had really felt called to go back to the land, to leave the city, to... Um, just live close to the earth. They were not explicitly spiritual people. Um, both of them were kind of culturally Jewish. I think you use the term secular Judaism, which feels very apropos. Um, neither of them were bat mitzvahed or bar mitzvahed. I was not bar mitzvahed. Um, but there was there was an atmosphere of cultural Judaism in our house growing up. So like that means we lit candles on Hanukkah and like went to my grandmother's in Long Island for Seder on Passover. You know, that was like the extent of it. And I loved it. I especially loved Passover because it was a ritual meal, you know, and that was always like suddenly I was living in a magical dimension that felt so familiar and felt so much more like home to me than normal life. It I don't know. I just ritual was always like the little moments of ritual that I got in my life as a child were like manna to me. Mm. But I wasn't really conscious of that. Like I wasn't cognizant of it at the time. I just knew that when it happened, I loved it, you know? And and so I was kind of in that environment, like growing up with animals and nature an only child in Vermont and just like spent tons of time by myself outside playing with the non-human world. Like that was a huge part of how my childhood was spent. Um, and my parents got divorced when I was very young and moved away from the very rural place where I was born into a, a slightly larger town, but my still quite rural. I mean, it's still Vermont, you know, and, and, um, and when I was in sixth grade, we moved to a new town and the people there, um, there was like this click of born again Christians at the school that I actually got pretty sucked into for a minute, for a couple of years, actually. And I think what happened when I reflect on it in retrospect is that, um, they were the first people who ever really like treated me as someone capable of mystical experience mm -hmm. and like validated my capacity for an unmediated relationship with God, mm -hmm. which I think is a lot of the power that evangelical Christianity has with children. Actually, I don't know if you've seen that movie, Jesus Camp, but mm -hmm. it's incredible and freaky. And, and, Christians really validate children's capacity to have religious experience, which 
in and of itself, I think is a really positive thing. It's just when that then gets manipulated that it gets really weird, which happened to me over time. With this group. Yeah. So I got really into it because suddenly I was like, okay, I'm allowed to like have spiritual experience, which was not happening in my home. In my home, intellectual experience and artistic experience were very supported and validated. And that was kind of where I always went was like academics and art. But I was very mystical as a kid and I didn't even really know it. I just it's like whenever there was an opportunity to like have a spiritual experience, I like wanted it. And this was how it showed up was like with this crew of evangelical Christians. And so I like started going to youth group and church because they were like one of those families with a huge white van that like took all the kids to church for youth group on Wednesday and church on Sundays. And it was social too. Mm -hmm. And I like lived in the middle of nowhere in rural Vermont and didn't have much of a social life. So it was like a chance to be with other kids. Which... How did your parents react to your newfound Christianity? They were not thrilled um, my mom was more sort of like tolerant and supportive. My dad was very skeptical of the whole situation, but he, he handled it very intelligently <laughs> to his credit, which is that he didn't tell me I couldn't do it because I think he knew then I'd just rebel blatantly, but he consistently asked me very pointed, like, relatively merciless questions about what was going on and what I really thought about what was going on. And he kept a pretty close eye on me. And needless to say, towards the end of my time in that group of people, when they invited me to come to a book burning at the church, my dad drew a line. Okay. He was like, Eve, that's what the Nazis did. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty hard to argue with. Um, but, but there was something that happened there that sparked something in me around basically just talking to God, like actually being empowered to talk to God myself mm. and that that was something I could do. And I actually used to pray that when I got older and stopped being a Christian, that God wouldn't believe me and send me to hell. As like a sixth grader, this was my prayer. So like, I kind of knew it wasn't gonna last. You know, even then, and that freaked me out because I was like, shit, if I be lapsed, then I'm going to go to hell. You know, there was a lot of hell fear going on. Okay. So needless to say, that started in sixth grade. And by eighth grade, the family that was at the center of this whole thing totally fell apart. And it turns out that like both the parents were alcoholics and they were both having affairs and so classic, you know, and I was like, okay, wait a goddamn minute. So you're trying to tell me that my parents, who are decent, honest, loving, generous, are going to hell. And you guys are the moral paradigm, you know? And I was like, no, fuck that. You're full of shit. And, you know, there. I think there's maybe like few forces on earth stronger than the righteous indignation of a 13-year-old. <laughs> so... I just got pissed and and I felt really betrayed because these people had been like claiming to be moral pillars right. and to tell me what morality was. There was a lot about morality in the mix, you know? And so I kind of, the pendulum really swung the other way for me after that. And I was like, 
no, Christianity is bullshit. Organized religion's bullshit. I don't want anything to do with any of it. Simultaneously, around the same time, like even younger, actually, probably when I was like, maybe in like fourth or fifth grade, my aunt, my dad's sister, had gotten me a tarot deck. And so I'd been reading tarot cards since I was very young. Like, it was nothing. Like, I saw no contradiction. Um, and had always been very sensitive and very intuitive. And, and so was she. And I think that's sort of like why she got me the cards. And she'd been kind of like seeing that in me and wanting me to feel like nurtured and supported in that. And I kind of just moved away from all of it in high school and just like went into scholarship and art because mm -hmm. that felt like something I could trust that wasn't going to like betray me. So along with the religion that betrayed you, what what happened with your sort of direct line to God in that time? Disappeared. Dis disconnected. Totally disconnected. Okay. God's on hold. God's on hold. <laughs> yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. it was, it sort of felt like, you know, like what happens to sex when you get raped? Like really, mm -hmm. you know, like that's what it felt. I felt like violated at my core mm -hmm. by what happened there. You know, and it was it was traumatizing because I had gone pretty deep mm -hmm. into like. It was less about Jesus for me and more just about like how it felt to be in a group of people praying because I'm so empathic. I now know that like to be in that environment, it was like it felt so different than it felt the rest of the time. It was like all these people's hearts were open and none of them were like tripping out about anything. We were just like in this spiritual space together and it felt so good to me. And that's what I loved about it. I loved singing together, you know, like, so anyway, all of that went away and I got really into theater and film and philosophy and art and literature and all of the things that are like the places where mysticism kind of hides in like, decent high school education, <laughs> you know, which I had. You went to boarding school for high school, right? I did. I went to Andover and, um, which I chose to go to because when the whole thing happened where the whole thing fell apart with the, I was like, I'm getting out of here. Like, I'm tired of being smarter than my teachers. Like I need to go I'm read out. Nietzsche. Yeah, exactly. And God so I died. did. So okay. I, I got myself there and, um, had an amazing experience in high school, particularly because of the theater department and because of the availability of high quality psychedelic drugs. <laughs> and <laughs> not something Andover is marketing very much, but <laughs> shockingly. Um, but that was, it was great. You know, I'm so grateful that I wound up with the people doing acid and mushrooms rather than the people like chugging eighths of vodka in the closet which was also happening there right you know but that was not my scene never was and and it was great i mean we literally used to like walk out into the woods together and read nietzsche in the snow out loud to each other on acid you know <laughs> like that was part of what was going on in high school for me thank you we can stop this interview because now everything <laughs> is explained <laughs> <laughs> and so that was expansive and amazing and you know a whole different approach to what it 
felt like to be spiritual. I wasn't thinking of myself as spiritual at all. At that point, I thought of myself as a wild bohemian artist. That was like my self-identified archetype at that point. And I just wanted to like be wild and free and and bohemian. I was very into the idea of being bohemian yes. in, in high school. I didn't even really know what that meant. I read a lot of Tom Robbins books and like a nice nin and was just like, sure, I belonged somewhere in the middle, you know? And, um, and so part of what that looked like for me was I was very clear, much to my parents' chagrin, that when I graduated from high school, I was going to move to New Orleans, which I did. And that was then a whole other layer of everything because, you know, I just spent four years at the same high school that George Bush went to, like, and I was like, you know, like I was a big curvy girl and that did not fly at Andover surrounded by like horse faced field hockey players, you know, and like. I never thought of myself as attractive. Like no one I liked ever liked me back, you know, with a few very like important exceptions. Um, And then suddenly I was in this place with a black standard of beauty Mm. and like my body wasn't gross anymore. Like, and suddenly I was like, oh, like that was different. And there was this woman who I got to be friends with, who was a stripper and a witch. And she kind of took me under her wing. And like, she was also like super voluptuous and just loved that about herself, like was so into it. And she was bigger than I was. And I had never been around a woman who was like into the fact that she was big. And that was revolutionary for me Mm. at that age it had never occurred to me that I could be attractive or sexy like and at the same time she was also like had been raised a like raised Wiccan by her mother Mm. and she her relationship to the spirit world was so like matter of fact like there was just no question that like there were all these other things going on all the time that were you couldn't see and that but you could hear or sense and and it was just such a part of her vernacular and a part of how she moved through the world and i was so like enamored of her that it reintroduced me to having a connection to the spirit world in a way that like short circuited the trauma that I had from Christianity. Mm. Cause she was like the furthest thing from them that anyone could possibly be. Mm. And yet she was super spiritual and a very integrous ethical person within being a stripper, witch, you know? (laughs) And so, so suddenly I was like 18 and I was like having my mind blown by this person who was just showing me that none of the rules applied or had to apply. And that like, you could absolutely, like that I was a magical person and that the things about me that were magical that didn't fit into norms were like the best things about me. Mm. And it really has so much to do with her and with 
the group of people that I kind of found in New Orleans that I feel like brought me back into a way of being mystical that actually like was authentic to my being. And I actually wound up, I was working as a short order cook as at this place that like the kitchen closed at three in the morning and like, I was just, I never saw the sunlight. And so I quit my job for Mardi Gras and never went back and wound up getting a job as a phone psychic. Oh, <sighs> Because I had been reading tarot cards this whole time. I never stopped reading tarot cards. All through high school, even, I kept reading tarot cards. Somehow that was, like, still mm -hmm. okay. I don't know how that happened, but I had such a connection to the cards. And so I got a job working for the Jacqueline Stallone Psychic Network. And uh, Does it still exist? I, I can only imagine. She's Sylvester Stallone's mother. Oh. And... Um, <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> little known fact. And um, and so I was a phone psychic at 18 for like a couple of months. And it was a pretty good gig. It so was surreal. What was that like? And ha pulling tarot cards is different than being a phone psychic. <laughs> I Last time I checked my spiritual dictionary, <laughs> which is maybe outdated. Um, I yes. And I did use cards. Mm -hmm. I basically I just winged it. I just, you know, I'd get a phone call and I would pull cards for them. Like I'd ask them to tap in and I would pull cards for them and I'd read the cards that I pulled and just tell them what I saw. And like, that's what I did, you know, and who knows like mm -hmm. how well these things work at a distance. But I really did genuinely like try to tap in and try to pull their cards and try to follow my intuition I mean, I at once have like deep faith in you in that role. And also you're affirming my suspicion that <laughs> phone psychics are just like yeah, fired former short order cooks <laughs> looking for the next gig. Which, you know, who's to say who's that to say? that's any less psychic than anyone else? Totally. I mean, I don't know how bad I could have been and still gotten the job. Right. I don't know. It was not like super rigorous. I had to give one reading to get the job. But the reading was good. So I, I, that's what I mean. I don't know how bad it could have been and still gotten the job. So, so I was a phone psychic for a while and sort of like coming back into things. And I mean, this would go on and on. But basically, <laughs> like, I would say that was the major turning point of like reconnecting me to what felt like my own authentic connection to the more than human world. And that the combination of like weirdo magic people and psychedelics and my own like genuine curiosity and like awe and wonder, like at that time in my life, I used to see flocks of birds flying overhead and just start weeping. Mm. And there was this one bookstore, this big open two floor bookstore in the French Quarter that I used to go into and I would just start weeping, mm. like being in the bookstore and like feeling all the words and all the thoughts and all the care that people had about communicating with each other and being engaged with the world in a way that was like lyrical and meaningful. And so like that was at the heart always of, of my sense of aliveness was just like meaning making mm -hmm. as a 
as a way to be. And and the same with, you know, at Andover, I got to take a class in existentialism with a woman who had just come there from teaching grad school, you know? So I was like, I read the Brothers Karamazov as a teenager and like that book changed my life. Like I, this character named Grishenka, who's this like amazing, sensual kind of fallen woman archetype, but is also like in a way the heart and soul of the book. Um, she was like this hero to me. She had this line, tomorrow the nunnery, but today let us dance. Mm -hmm. And that was like my battle cry mm -hmm. in high school, you know? And so there was just this sense of like unabashed aliveness and connection to creativity and that we were responsible for generating our own meaning, that that's not something that's going to get handed to us from God. Like we like that was what I got from existentialism as a teenager was that like, if I'm going to live a meaningful life, it's because I'm choosing that my life has meaning mm -hmm. and that I'm engaging with the world in a way that creates meaning. And so like all of those kind of situations, I think fed into like that general way of being. Wow. I have so many beautiful images of you from this story. <laughs> Reading Nietzsche in the woods, weeping with the birds, <laughs> being in the bookstore. I don't know. I picture this. I picture you in a basement when you're answering calls and tarot cards. Pretty much. Pretty it much. was like a New Orleans shotgun apartment. Yeah. It might as well have been a basement. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's jumping ahead a little bit, but this idea of meaning making. I'm curious if you can speak about that in terms of ritual. And, mm. you know, something for me as I'm coming to learn about ritual and you engage with ritual in my own life is in some ways what you're talking about, which is this tension between inherited practices that are already imbued with some meaning, especially in sort of today's hodgepodge spirituality, spiritual cultures where we're also drawing on so many traditions, like to make those things feel personal and do, do they have this abstract meaning, right? Like I'll find myself, okay, if I don't have the tobacco in my hand, then the prayer's not going up, right? And then at the same time, you can think of so many, because I hold so many different spiritual traditions in my mind, then you're like, well, the Taoists, meanwhile, aren't praying with tobacco, but their pr prayers are going up. So I guess none of it matters, right? So I'm curious what your own path to ritual has been and just on a more intellectual level, how you think about meaning making as a ritualist? Mm. A casual question. <laughs> they, they're all good. That's <laughs> the most casual I have. Um, I love it. I love thinking about these things. Um, I think where I want to start is just with this, like that building a relationship with ritual practice for me is itself an experimental journey of meaning making. Like the ritual practice is the meaning making. It's not like you you know how to make meaning and then you do the ritual. You know, it's like, for me, this 
what I was just talking about of like this way of being engaged with the world. Like ritual is just the most natural, obvious application of that way of being. And I think part of where that comes from for me is um, a real like fundamental intuitive draw to pre-imperial culture you know, mm -hmm. and to indigenous culture and to my own ancestral roots, pre-imperial roots, um, pre-Christian roots. And like just feeling this like soul pull towards cultures that clearly have a relationship with reality that just makes way more sense to me than the one that I was born into is really what it comes down to. Like capitalism and patriarchy just make no sense to me, like on a really basic level. Like I'm so confused by the fact that that's the thing that we got to as like the way mm -hmm. to do things. I mean, I've studied it all. I see how it happened. I get it on a intellectual level, but on like a soul level, I'm just like, what, really? This is what we're doing? It just, it's like tragic to me because I can see the beauty that humans are capable of. And so much of that I see in, you know, older, more original culture all over the world. I mean, I've studied it a lot. You know, I, I, for better or worse, I will say that I studied for 10 years with a man named Martin Prechtel. Um, it's not a relationship that ended well. We had a pretty significant falling out, but I still have huge respect for a lot of his teachings, even though I find him problematic as a human. Um, I think he's holding a lot of real potency and meaning and beauty. And um, and he taught me a lot about understanding the dynamic between imperial and indigenous culture and, and what ritual is and how it functions. Who is he? He actually lives here in New Mexico. He's a I mean, I don't really want to get into it, to be honest, but he's a he's a spiritual teacher okay. and he's a he's half native, half non-native. And he um, lived for many, many years with the Tutuhil Maya in Guatemala and mm -hmm. was like taken into their whole mm -hmm. um, world. But he he teaches a lot about like indigenous culture and ancient history as a whole and how it the trajectory of it into the modern era. And um and so a lot of what I understand about ritual I learned from him. Mm -hmm. And and that has a lot to do with offerings and with offering-based culture and how um there's like 
in pre-industrial cultures, there's this understanding that we're in debt to the natural world and that we make offerings as a way of like not trying to get out of debt, but actually just trying to stay in debt beautifully, like acknowledging, like mm -hmm. I get everything from you. Here's a part of what you gave me that I took and made into something beautiful to give back to you, mm. you know? And this way of being in relationship with the more than human world. And that just makes so much sense to me. Mm -hmm. Like this, you know, as I said, I grew up spending so much time alone in nature. So it's unthinkable to me that we would feel outside of that and that we would think we're above it or it's like a resource for us. Like I, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like it seems so obvious that there's this magical web of life that we are embedded within to our great blessing, mm -hmm. you know, and we just seem to want to put ourselves above it and be outside it and be masters of it. But like to me and what I see, like so many people who live close to the earth feeling is like, no, we want to just be our one little small part of the big thing. Mm -hmm. And that one way to do that, that ritual is a way of being in relationship with the web of life. Mm -hmm. That's animals and plants and weather and possibility and, and sentient forces beyond ourselves that are shaping our world. And that the only way to really be in relationship with them is to like give them gifts and talk to them and like try to like meet them part way. And so if they're operating in a magical reality, then in order to like be in relationship with them, you have to also at least partially be hanging out in a magical reality. Because otherwise, how are you supposed to be in relationship with them? And so ritual is like this pathway into a mode of relationality with all of existence. Mm -hmm. That's what it feels like to me. And it's a way of participating in the web of existence and showing up and being like, okay, I'm on board. Like, I want to be a part of the magic. I want to contribute to what's good. I want to feed what's needs feeding. I want to uh, serve what serves me. You know, it's like you want to be embedded in the reciprocity that you see everywhere the minute you just start paying attention. Mm -hmm. And so it just feels like ritual practice, whatever that is for you, is a way of being deeply engaged with the fact that like there's a lot going on mm -hmm. all the time beyond what's immediately obvious to be able to see or hear. Mm. Beautiful. Do you think about ritual then as metaphor again, as in, because, you know, you, you study and I think engage so many rich lineages that have these deep traditions. And for me, again, coming at it from the, living in the secular society, it's like, okay, do I think about that as there's, 
these are embedded technologies that have a very specific function in each of these cultures, and they are um, functioning in this codified mystical way? Or is it, as you're saying, I almost take away, it almost doesn't matter what the ritual practice is. It matters that there is a ritual practice and that it's personal and it's about those central tenets of reciprocity. Um, and I think that's something often, you know, how how literal to take the practices in spiritual practice where metaphor comes in to it. Yeah. Such an interesting question. I mean, I think metaphor is what post-industrial late-stage capitalist culture has instead of ritual. Mm. It's like we are so divorced from the fundamental multidimensional nature of reality because we've been so conditioned into a commodity-based consciousness that when we see a bowl of water on an altar, we can only understand it as the ocean as metaphor. Like, it's like we were not capable of what most, like, people in cultures that are, like, village cultures that, you know, are not navigating in the same kind of conditioning that we are have no problem seeing that bowl of water as the ocean. Like, it's not a metaphor. Like, in a ritual context, that that bowl of water is the ocean. There's no problem. Not a representation of it. No. But it, as in we're bringing that into this space. As in it is that. And and it's so interesting because, again, it's like one of Martine's biggest teachings is about the verb to be, which is is, mm -hmm. right? And how Indo-European languages have the verb to be and most old indigenous languages don't. And that that's part of why we struggle with this metaphor thing. Because without the verb is... There's no problem, right? Nothing is anything. There's no is. But we're so conditioned to think of it that way that like we can't think outside of it. It's English is so verb to be oriented that like we are held within a frame of isness and we don't know how to think outside of it. But if you can imagine even the idea for a moment of a consciousness that never had that concept in the way that language shapes consciousness, so that instead of something being anything, like something carries the ocean or holds the ocean, like the bowl of water holds the ocean, like mm -hmm. it isn't anything. Mm -hmm. So there's no problem with it being something else. And so it's like in a ritual context, like metaphor is this like, it's sort of like the starved version of ritual. It's like, like we're like, okay, this is like that in a way where it's like, 
we can kind of tap into the way this connects to that and we can sort of intellectually justify it to ourselves. But that's ultimately, I think, incredibly limited. And that the truth of how reality is actually operating is so much more interesting and so much less codified than that. Like the way that communication is happening between trees and the way that we're not sure how electrons can be in two places at the same time and like all this stuff that's so wild that just blows that idea that like I don't think ritual is metaphor. Mm -hmm. I think that's a limited way of viewing it even though it's understandable and maybe is like a a pathway towards something. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's the end point because I think if you're operating within a context of metaphor, then when you're praying, it's like that means your prayer is a metaphor. Mm -hmm. And that's not what I think is happening, actually. I think because if it's a metaphor, then how are you actually participating with the shaping of reality? If it's all a metaphor, it's like it's like saying that you're like pretending. Mm -hmm you know? Versus this ritual is doing something. Yeah. This ritual is participating, participating in, and, and I think part of why it gets so starved is because so much ritual and prayer has been reduced to like trying to get what we want, mm -hmm. trying to manifest abundance, you know, mm -hmm. trying to like, whatever, like thinking that the purpose of like engaging is to have what we want. And so then the whole thing just gets shrunk down to like so much less than what it's supposed to be. Like the real purpose of human engagement with ritual is to like feed back into where we get everything from. Gratitude. It's about gratitude mm -hmm. and recognizing how blessed we are and wanting to like make it known to whoever it is that's giving us this crazy profusion of beauty called the world that we get to be in, that we notice. And we're not taking it for granted and we're not thinking that like we're special, but that we're just like so aware of the blessing of our lives that we can't help but want to give back. Mm -hmm. Like that's at the heart of uh, what I think of as like authentic ritual practice mm -hmm. is, is like feeding the magic not getting what we can from it right feeding know? the gods yes in this idea feeding the gods rather than extracting exactly. as is our current cultural mo precisely i'm thinking about how about what you were saying earlier about living in connection to nature mm. and certainly that's been my experience as i've uh grown up, you know, right outside of New York City and gradually found my way to now the mountains of Santa Fe, where I also have a fire to heat yeah. my house. And I recently went back to New York a few weeks ago and just it's so striking to walk around in a metropolis where it's all built environment and so disconnected. And I'm not saying that about the people. There are beautiful people there with deep spiritual practices and earth worshipers and everything. But just to be in that and and as, you know, we're nearing what a point of 50% of our planet being urbanized, 
and or people living in cities. Is that true? I, wow. Please don't rely on me for any statistics <laughs> until when I have my research team assembled. <laughs> totally. Fair <laughs> but enough. But some, something to that extent. Um, and so this is a big one, but I know you can do it, which is for someone who maybe is listening and like my mother, who when I first brought up speaking about capitalism in the same way, almost as like, of course, do I even need to explain myself? Well, what's wrong with capitalism was the response, right? And to say it's been distorted, we have corporate capitalism, right? There's a lot of problems with it. But maybe for obviously so many of us are still mired in these problematic paradigms that you're talking about. And can you help us understand in a very cursory way, of course, but how we got to this point from your understanding and your depth of studies? I mean, the real answer is big and long and complex and vast and goes back to Rome. But, um, and the Phoenicians, and I mean, it, there's a big, long historical trajectory that got us where we are. And the roots of it are kind of mysterious on a certain level in terms of like what it is that caused some people to want power over other people in a way that made it seem justifiable and reasonable to ruin their way of life in order to get what they wanted. And so the like psychological roots of that, I don't claim to know, but you know, empire, it's like, that's the roots of it is impure imperial culture and the way that empire, like, you know, Rome is kind of the, the big classic ancient example. Um, just started to subsume authentic cultures in order to have power over them and to tax, you know, taxation. They forced nomads to settle so that they could tax them because you can't tax nomads when they're nomads because they're moving. And um, it's old, you know, and, and so then it perpetuates itself. And you, and then at a certain point you get and you desert object-based economy for money-based economy. And that's a, that's a big shift. It's a big one. That book, Caliban and the Witch, mm -hmm. that you borrowed for me is this amazing kind of like critique of the burning times from a kind of post-Marxist, like anti-capitalist framing of like understanding that part of what was going on there was the shift to a cash economy and what happened when suddenly labor was rather than working in direct 
exchange for what you need to live. You're working for money to buy the things that you need to live. And that that's, you know, the roots of capitalism, the roots of a market economy. And, um, and it changes everything, especially because it means that there's a difference in value between labor that earns money and labor that doesn't earn money, namely men's work and women's work at that point, right? Because men's work earned money and women's work didn't. It just raised the children and cooked the food and made everything else possible. And before there was money, it was all like none of it was for money. So all the work just made life possible. So it was all equally valued. And then suddenly money comes into the picture. And like there's this difference between work that earns money and work that doesn't. And these power dynamics start to develop and these hierarchies start to develop and this way of relating to the earth as something that like you can exploit if you're smart and you can get money. And, and I mean, it's big and vast, but I think it's, it, it's slow. Part of how it happened is that it was slow. Right. And it happened gradually over time and many, many choices and many, many, like small things happened that kept moving us in this direction to the point where now we're all so entrenched in it that we actually don't have other options actually without being willing to just completely sacrifice what we think of as our quality of life. And so pe what the way that shows up for people is that they think they don't have options. They just play the game because they don't feel like they can do anything else. And it's something I think about all the time. I mean, it's not like I have answers to this, you know, but <sighs> I do know that when I walk into a store and there's an entire wall of different options of small cardboard boxes of grains with flavor packets <laughs> like single serving grains in plastic bags with little flavor packets in plastic bags and there's like 150 different options of like rice pilaf. <laughs> and then on the next wall, there's 150 different options of sugar, sugar coated cereal. And that's like the accomplishment of our culture. That's like abundance, you know? It's like, that's where we got to from all of these series of like getting gradually more and more divorced from growing food and yeah you know living simply well and what i'm thinking about again is how that then compromised our relationship to the numinous and spirituality and i think a lot about capital and the extractive quality of it and empire and how that then led to 
how it relates to scientific reductionism and materialism mm-hmm. because that again you know i i hear myself speaking and i the binary is in my voice which is to say spirituality is non-rational or i have to suspend rationality in order to engage with magical practices and again why i'm having you here is because i i love how you speak about these things where they start to feel entirely rational and in fact the only sane way <laughs> to engage with the world um i do think that's true and i do think that the kind of lie that we've been sold that like places like a mythological relationship to reality and a a mystical relationship to reality at odds with being reasonable and practical and intelligent and like functioning in the world is it's a mechanism of control. And, um, because when people become divorced from their practices and from their root in an embodied relationship with spirit that is earth, like when those two, when all of that is, is integrated, you have a power that cannot be exploited or manipulated or conditioned into a consumer paradigm. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just not going to buy the bullshit when you have that kind of root, you know? And so that just won't do. And so that gets attacked very effectively over time. I mean, it took time, you know? There are still people on this planet that have that root, Mm -hmm but they are being systematically divorced from it in one way or another, whether it's their lands being stolen and destroyed or their way of life being made impossible in some way, you know? Um, But it really took time because when you have that kind of relationship with the earth and an understanding that that kind of relationship with the earth is a relationship to the numinous, that they're not separate, that's, that is a real source of authentic power that will stand up for what it knows to be true at the expense of all else because they know nothing else matters, actually. That they're not susceptible to like... It's to the earth and then to also your own embodied power. That they're not separate, that they're the same thing. I mean, there's an understanding that your body is the earth and the earth is your body and that, that you can't draw a line between them. Right. You know. Well, it feels like a good segue to, I know you recently offered a workshop at Spirit Weavers called Reclaiming Eros, um, Sex with Self, Sex with God. It's true. And you are now on your way to becoming a Taoist sex monk. <laughs> Less true, but not right. entirely inaccurate. <laughs> totally. Um, you know, deeply engaged in the erotic basis of being program at Moga Dao. So how do you see um, our sort of relationship to our sexuality as supporting what you mm. just named about power and intrinsic power and connection to earth? Mm. 
and the numinous. Yeah, I really see it as a way back into that way of being. Um, because I think one, you know, one way of looking at what we're talking about is this notion um, really in what we understand as post-Taoist philosophy um, of the Jing, which is the procreative sexual energy from which all other energy is sourced. And there's this understanding that the Jing is that is like when we're talking about that aspect of the self that is immune to manipulation and exploitation, that's the Jing. And that when you are connected to your Jing, when your Jing is being lifted up into the field of Qi, then you're sourcing the energy that you're using to live from the part of yourself that cannot be manipulated and exploited. And so while on one hand, like ecstatic practice is amazing and this incredible pathway to the numinous, at an even more fundamental level, why I'm so interested in this work is because I feel like repairing the Jingqi bridge which is clearly so damaged in our culture and in ourselves as individuals. And getting that connection healthy and flowing and really vital again so that the Jing and the Qi are flowing up into the Shen and that fountain is moving and the energy is being sourced from that place, then that's a very concrete way of beginning to resource people into a place where they're going to be less susceptible to the bullshit because they're actually sourcing power from like what actually is power mm -hmm. as opposed to what they've been sold. Procreative power. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so, and so there's this way of then when you attune to your desire as a roadmap to your destiny of like who you were born to be and what you were born to do, and suddenly that's what you're orienting towards, then you're much less likely to get sold a bunch of bullshit that you don't need. Mm -hmm. Because the only way you can get sold a bunch of bullshit you don't need is if you're not in touch with that and you don't think you're enough and you don't believe in your own beauty and your own power and your own worth and that you need to like buy the next thing in order to band-aid the pain of not being good enough that they are perpetually keeping fed. And and when you come into relationship with the Jing, then suddenly that like it just doesn't land as much. Mm -hmm. That's what I found in my own life and have watched happen in other people that like it just doesn't have the power it had before mm -hmm. because like you have come into a relationship with your erotic nature, which is also the thing that embeds you into that web of life that we were talking about earlier because that web of eros the web of erotic relationship is the same web that you connect to through ritual it's that same web that i'm always like looking to reweave us into mm -hmm. because when you have an understanding that you're woven into the web of life then you want to serve it mm -hmm. it's really that simple so whatever i can do to help us like remember that and know that we're a part of that and that 
all we really need to do is like nurture that in whatever way we're good at doing. Like, that's it. That's all I really know how to do. Mm-hmm. That's all that like makes sense to me to do. I want to read some a post of yours recently on Instagram that I think really beautifully captures what a lot of us are navigating in this time. Um, you wrote, our house is on fire and I love making strange magic art love. And I can't tell if it matters anymore, but I have to believe that it does. I am here to serve the wild mystery that dances between opposites. And I can feel the beauty we are capable of. And I can feel how far we have strayed from its true capacity. And I'm inspired every day and I'm heartbroken every day. And how are you supposed to feel okay dancing, singing, cooking, loving, making, thinking in the kitchen when the whole damn house is on fire? How do you and how do you continue to think about ritual in this time? I know the course that you are offering with Isis is called Practical Magic for Strange Times or Potent Times. Yeah. And again, you know, I can feel the reductionist thinker in me wanting to get at, well, is ritual saving us? Is it doing? How do you keep believing in the magic that you're sowing when look who we have in office and look what's happening in in the Amazon? And totally, as you say, how how I think a lot of us also, I mean, this is why Adrian Marie Brown's pleasure activism is so important because the impulse, it does feel like to watch this world almost how can one feel pleasure if you feel pleasure then are you actually plugged into the web of reality because the web of reality is suffering pretty hard right now yeah so how do you think about your magic how do you do you ever get caught up in that sort of um outcome oriented modality for the rituals that you create and how can magic serve us in these times yeah i think about it all the time And, you know, part of what I was getting at in that post is one of the things that I feel like I grapple with a lot as I'm engaged in this deep study of mythopoetic healing practice um, and ritual work and is you know, the way that the current state of affairs, the way that climate chaos and the ecological crisis have this capacity to make things that otherwise feel so meaningful seem irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And that that is such a strange Mm -hmm. thing to be grappling with, that it's like this work that I'm doing right now just feels like the most amazing, fascinating, meaningful work. And at the same time, like, does it even matter? Like, if the house is on fire, like, does it matter that I'm meditating in the bedroom? You know, like, how does that work? And and when you're creating your mandala of artifacts and praying around them and then seeing that the house is still on fire. Totally. So... The way that I have come to navigating this 
is, and this came from a lot of really like deep kind of agonizing contemplation and inquiry and ritual practice is that it's actually the, the trap is to have it be outcome-based. That's the thing that keeps you caught in the loop of relevancy and irrelevancy is like, if the only thing that makes what I'm doing relevant is if it stops climate change, then I'm fucked, you know, because like, that's not the scale that I'm operating on as a human being. And so this is where like attuning to the Tao is actually like incredibly helpful for me because the Tao is this notion of like ultimate harmony, right? It's like the big, the biggest version of harmony. And so by orienting towards the Tao, towards this notion of harmony, and by cultivating sensitivity as a religious vocation, as a spiritual quality, that you cultivate sensitivity to such an extent that you can attune to the greatest harmony of any given situation and orient towards that, towards feeding that with everything that you do, then I can't think of anything more to do than that. And you're not doing it because of what it's going to do. You're doing it because it's the right thing to do. Because that it's the only thing to do. And if along the way it does some good, which inevitably it will, great. But that's not why you do it. You do it because it's bringing you into harmony with the largest forces. So for example, like a really small example is like, if I stop using single use plastic water bottles because I think it's gonna save the world, I'm just gonna get depressed, you know, because like they're being used all the time. But if I stop using single use plastic water bottles because it is clearly the way to come into harmony with the sacred elements of life and with the forces of the universe and like how water moves and what plastic does and that like that is not the way for me to participate in the web of life in a way that brings me into harmony with the web of life then that feels like really good mm -hmm. that is the right thing to do and that's going to bring me one step closer into being in harmony and so and then I'm not getting caught up thinking about like, oh, but this and that and the other thing, which is not helpful. And it's it's a subtle shift in perception, you know, but it's like what I need to do in order to be sane. Because otherwise I just get caught in this loop of like nothing I do is enough, nothing I do is enough, nothing right. I do is enough, nothing I do is enough. And, and instead I have to orient towards 
participating in harmony within the largest web of life. Makes me think that practical in in the name of your course, the practical magic is really about practice and what you're saying, you know, you create the ritual not to have an outcome, but because living, doing ritual is the way to feed the Tao and is the way to live. Absolutely. And in that court, in the Serpent Path Retreat, which is what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. um, there's a very clear progression of cultivating ritual practice as a way to come into alignment with your own self. And we like do ritual practice. First, we travel up the Kabbalistic tree of life, right? That's the serpent path, is the path up the tree of life. And so the first, the beginnings of that journey are personal work. They're like engaging the intellect and the emotions and and like clearing out the stuff that's like on a personal individual level using ritual practice, using prayer, using ritual technologies to like clear out the personal so that you can begin to travel into the archetypal and align with, we work specifically with the archetypes of the healer and the warrior as like primary archetypes of the time that we're living in. Um, so that you can be available. So you clear out the personal. So, and then you use ritual practice to attune to the archetypal and to be able to align with these larger archetypal energies, which allow you to participate with power in a harmonious way with these forces, which then align you with your own purpose work, which allows you to be of service. So it's like this progression of utilizing different ritual technologies to do personal work, to put you in service to some to something larger than your own self. You know, that's that's actually what's happening in that retreat. And so it's like it's this it's a journey of getting to the place where you're doing exactly what we're talking about, which is like living in a way where you recognize your power in such a way that you want to put it to use on behalf of life, mm-hmm. you know? And when I find myself wanting to understand, okay, a ritualized technology, like what is actually happening? How is that clearing my, okay, you know, you, if there's sage, there, whatever the technology is. So often I've been in ceremonies we do this and it's like I hereby release this thing I release it right and I say it and then I I wonder right did I did did something just happen did I just release it and it does I think about what you once said to me about prayer which is echoing what you're saying about ritual which is participation that you're adding your voice to the liminal space and voice itself having a mystical quality and a resonance and a vibration. But, um, and this will be just the last question, is again, to help tell the literal amongst us understand how a ritual technology works on us Mm. to do that work. I mean, I'm certainly no expert, (laughs) but, And there's many different ritual technologies. But since you spoke about the voice, 
Um, and that's such a foundational one. You know, there's like the only thing really that all the mystical traditions agree on is that the world is made of sound, right? Vibration. And there's so many different practices and technologies that have to do with utilizing sound vibration to participate in the shaping of reality. Whether it's the mouth harp and the way that shamanic practitioners journey with mouth harp that vibrates the whole skull and like creates this crazy field of vibration mm -hmm. or uh, throat singing or crystal singing bowls or spoken prayer or, you know, sacred sound, seed sounds in uh, Hebrew and in Sanskrit. You know, there's so many different ritual technologies that relate to sound and relate to sound vibration. And <laughs> it's our fire, the crackling of the fire. Um, and that that first conversation that we had, you know, there's this way in which really some of my early experiences with psychedelics um, showed me what is now like I understand to be kind of foundational Taoist theory, philosophy, which is this notion of like the space between opposites. And there's this force field that gets created between chaos and order, between action and reflection, between steadfastness and risk, right? There's these like dynamics that exist. And if you take that onto the largest scale of like the nature of reality, the thing that I feel with sound and language, like when you are using language to speak something into existence, I feel like language is this very fluid very malleable, very flexible thread of sound that can find its way into those spaces between opposites, which is what the liminal, right? It's that's the space where reality is getting made. And it can find its way in there and participate in the reality that's getting made. And we don't know exactly how that works. But certainly there's like so many traditions and so many practices that have to do with this very sophisticated understanding of the way sound vibration participates in the shaping of reality, right? Like a hundred thousand mystics can't be wrong, you know? It's like 
there's something happening there. And I don't claim to like scientifically understand it, though there are some amazing, many amazing things that have been written about it. Mm -hmm. For me, I'm more speaking from this like gut intuitive place of like, I can feel myself participating in the formation of reality in a way that is of service to something bigger than myself and is calling out into the fertile void of like, this is this is the sound that I'm making into the web of sound that's making everything. And, and the way that language shapes consciousness and the way that consciousness shapes reality, there's, there's a way that I do feel like holding it as a mode of participating that feels like fertile and true because I'm not trying to be a master of anything. I'm not trying to tell reality what to do because I don't know what's best. I really don't. I just want to contribute and I want to participate in a way that feeds the Tao, that feeds that largest possible harmony. And, and so these different technologies feel like ways to do that that's aligning with the multidimensional magical nature of reality rather than fighting against it with things that are counter to its fundamental nature, like single-use plastic water bottles. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to end it that way, but I I just wanted to say, again, our culture also, which is so science has become our religion. And so there is this um, need that, that if there isn't empirical evidence for something, or if there isn't a fully scientific, rational explanation for the, how the prayer and the sage function, then it is delegitimatized. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think even part of reframing how we live is reframing the demand and the hubris that we have to know and to understand and that you can't come at ritual and magic and spirit and this incredible web of life that is still more complex than we have the science to explain there has to be a humility in coming to it and saying i don't know how this works but i know that what i've been given and told is the only thing that does work or can work certainly doesn't work and doesn't even pretend to answer to the mystery of my soul and so again it's like i i have such a fierce rational intellect and a skeptic that wants to understand and have an explanation. And then I think at a certain point, you have to have the self-awareness and the reflection of the cultural paradigm that has shaped your consciousness with which you are coming to these practices to try to understand. Totally. And I think like when I hear you talk, it's like that part of you wants the rational explanation but then there's this other part of you that would be so disappointed if there actually was a rational explanation for all of it. Because we need something that's beyond rational explanation. Like we need it so much more than we need the hard science. Like our soul needs to feel 
the vastness of the mystery that is so much bigger than the electron microscope. And that is so much bigger than the stock exchange. And that is so much bigger than anything the human mind can quantify. Because we feel it. We know that that's true. And so if every piece of magic could be like reduced and explained, we'd be so sad. <laughs> you know, we'd be so sad because it's so much bigger than that. And we're so small and we need that. Mm -hmm. It's actually like the most comforting thing is like, thank God it's so big. Right. Totally. Because mystery and vastness contain infinite possibility, which there is hope in that where there's not a lot otherwise. And at the same time, I often think about magic as a classification, which is like as soon as, right, anything that we can explain, we therefore say is no longer magic. But I can't explain how computers work. Most of, many people can, but I can't, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like at what point does that stop being magical, right? Really? That all of, we, I, I turn a knob and a waterfall comes out in my bathroom to cleanse me. I flick a switch and um, I, I bring light into <laughs> darkness, right? These incredible what is modernity is actually founded on incredibly magical phenomenon over and over that we just have found an explanation for. And God, imagine if we did find too much of an explanation for these more mystical, powerful forces, we might not yield them to the best use as we're seeing. As we're seeing. Absolutely. Well, Thank you so much. Um, there's so much more. So I'm actually going to say that this was a part one <laughs> because I would love to talk to you about village culture and culture making and mythopoetics and archetype and mm. um, really get so much more into your work and some of these ideas. So I look forward to having you back and I'm just so grateful to be in conversation with you in this life. Mm, thank you. So rich and deep and such a beautiful opportunity to just explore ideas that we so often just don't take the time to really like navigate into. It's really, it's really a pleasure. So I look forward to more as well. If this episode turned you on, please subscribe, rate, and review us. It makes a huge difference. Then head to strippersandsages.com to learn more about our guests, sign up for our mailing list, access special resources, and become a Patreon supporter, which would be very sexy of you. Special thanks to Ben Euphrat for scoring and mixing these episodes, and to Lilia Tam and John Wolfstone for their production support. Stay sexy, folks. I reach inside myself to know myself, to touch a self, to touch the world, to hold that impossible face inside my hands. I reach inside to hold the impossible world. I reach for the face of the world inside the horizon, inside my name, and touch a tender unnamed, unknown thing. 
I reach inside myself in search of something real to know, in search of some remembering, some whispering, some pathway towards the one I'm meant to be. Reaching slow and tender towards the lover inside, the one who must come first. Fingertips brushing the petal tips of flowers wet with dew. Pine boughs just after a rain, shaken onto the skin of my neck, enveloping my senses in the opening water asks of us always. Allows for us always. This reaching is my only voice for now. These long arms are my language, my only language, to call your name. I reach inside a place I've never been, a place you cannot go to and return unchanged. The only place there is to reach, the only way there is to know. Born of desire, of necessity, of no other way to go. The muscles of this expansion reach beyond their own capacity and into unknown asking, seeking unknown offering. Quiet, careful exploration of cave walls in the dream damp darkness. Markings here and there, left by those who came before, speaking across time into these hands that linger, follow, falter, halting only momentarily, then seek a place deeper than finding. For now, this reaching is all I know, all I have, and all that I can offer. Open palms asking only to be filled with empty, soft curves. To become by being filled. To be made in the reaching. To be turned into offering the moment contact is made.